0: There's a tradition from the early church, it's kind of been the theme for our weekend for those of you that were fasting, there was a 40 hour fast, that's kind of been the tradition, that was the earliest tradition that was probably recorded, uh, um, dealing with Lent and fasting and giving things up around Easter uh, and, and the early church looked at it as Jesus was in the grave for 40 hours and so they would fast for 40 hours um, and then through time that kind of expanded to 40 days and so... Uh, which, if if you want to practice Lent as they practice it today, I think it would be a, a great practice. I can tell you, um, having been privileged to hear about some of the things that people have experienced as they fasted and hearing the stories, it was really a blessing, I think, to us as a church. Uh, and I would encourage you to practice that discipline more often and, and fast from things and, and set them aside, that you can pray and, and focus on Scripture and think about Jesus. And so... Uh, I would just encourage that, but this this fast or this this um, tradition of forty hours was that Jesus was dead for forty hours, and so sometime on at three p.m. around three p.m. on Friday, he would have called out, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit," and he would have breathed his last. Jesus was dead. In some way, in those moments on the cross, in a way we probably can't truly comprehend, Jesus had, he had taken the sins of His people and absorbed God's wrath for those sins. But the interesting thing is, as He died, His final words, as He died... Having become sin, having become detestable to God, having become a a, a grotesque figure of of, of sinful man, as he died, he knew that his spirit was headed to be to, to headed home. Headed to be with the Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He had become sin, but in some way, after he left that body, after his spirit ascended from that body, and it was left hanging limp and lifeless on the cross. The sins and the weight and the burden of God's wrath stayed. And his spirit went to be with his father. Now, upon his death, Matthew records for us some significant events. He, says to, uh, he tells us that the temple veil is torn. It's a curtain that's, a, that's said to be about 60 feet high and 3 inches thick. And it ripped from top to bottom. You see, the beauty of that is, is that that curtain separated the holiest place in the temple from the rest of the world. That place that was behind the curtain was set aside for only certain people to go. The high priests of Jerusalem would go there only at specified times, and they had so many things to follow, so many traditions that they had to had, had to follow and prepare for before they'd even walk behind it. Because as they walked behind it, they were. Broken, sinful people walking into the presence of holy God. And Matthew tells us that 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 curtain was torn. And later, the writer of Hebrews lets us know that that curtain, the veil in the temple wasn't just torn, but it was replaced. The writer of Hebrews lets us know that now our way and our, 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 our ability to stand before a holy God, our opportunity to stand before a righteous and perfect God as sinful people, comes through Jesus Christ. He says the foundations of the earth shook. There was an earthquake. I mean, Jesus died, the creator of the world. I mean, it it says in John that nothing was created without him. In some of your reading this weekend, that the scriptures focused on him being the creator. Jesus, the creator, had been killed. And now, rocks that he had said just a week before he had come into Jerusalem, and and as he came in, he said, if you don't praise the rocks, I'll cry out. These rocks that he said would cry out proved to be more compliant with God's will than the hard-hearted Jews, who in fact felt no sorrow or no conviction or no sadness because Jesus was dead. But they were happy. It felt satisfied. The rocks cried out and they were split as the earth groaned under the truth of our, of our Creator being killed by the people He created. Graves opened. And it wouldn't be fully realized, this wouldn't be fully realized until after Jesus rose from the grave, <clears throat> But those graves were opened, and I think in that we begin to see that they, that the restraints of death, the the the, the ties of death to, to man were loosed. There was no tomb that would hold Jesus and those that follow him. There is no tomb, no grave, no no no, no, no uh, funeral, no no resting of the body, no sleeping in, in death, no Nothing that will will keep us away from him. Nothing that will separate us. The graves open, and after he rose, others from that, from from those graves rose and and they were watching people that they knew had died walking around. That's crazy romans Romans learned the truth It's interesting that the people that Jesus came to specifically, the Jews rejected him and hung him on a cross. And the Romans beat him, mocked him, they laughed at him, they, they treated him horribly. They hung him on a cross, the most, uh, the, the most humiliating way for a person to be executed. They hang him there and they watch over him and they watch him die. Matthew tells us that the centurion and those that had watched over Jesus, after his death, after, after the earthquake, after, after watching how he uh, the, the way he acted and responded to the jeers and the snide remarks and the mocking of the passersby and the people spitting on him and laughing at him, after, after they watched it all, the centurion and the Romans that watched over him understood. In fact, the centurion says this truly was the Son of God. Then Jesus, lifeless, dead body, hanging from the cross. Two men, who had been too scared to say anything out loud about who they were, come to remove him and bury him. John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea and and, uh, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus both were on the Jewish high council. And because of who they were in Jewish culture, they were were secret followers of Christ. Nicodemus had come to Christ early on and asked about how it was that he would gain eternal life. And that's when Jesus told him about being born again and being regenerated by the Spirit. And he didn't understand how in the world can a grown man go back into his mother's womb. And Jesus tried to show him that that's not the birth that he's talking about. But a spiritual birth being made alive in the Spirit. Joseph of Arimathea, a a rich man who who ruled in Jerusalem. Both of them, because of the death of Christ, were were willing and ready now to step into the light of day and honor him. I mean, just imagine. They hurriedly prepare his body. They they put it in a tomb and they, they roll a large stone in front of the tomb. And then by their tradition, it was time for the Sabbath, and they weren't allowed anymore to touch dead bodies or, or be near anything unclean, or they themselves wouldn't be able to participate in the traditions. And so they left him there, dead in a grave. From their perspective, everything was done. It was over. They'd done what needed to be do, done. They had, they had honored him in the way that they could honor him, and they left his grave. His followers, the the ones that were closest to him, were scared and scattered and cowering. Really, they all thought it was finished. You know, from their perspective, and, and we really have no record, and there's a reason we have no record of any of them coming together and trying to figure out how to move forward and how to continue on the work that Jesus had done because they didn't think it could be done. I mean, imagine where they would have been at. Imagine what they would have dealt with. Three years of their life, they had, they had left it all. They had walked away from everything. Their livelihoods, their, their families, their traditions, the things that they had been taught all their lives. They get up and they leave it. And they follow this man who had power and he taught with authority and he loved people genuinely. Now he's dead. We don't have a record of them looking to move on because I think they thought it was done, but imagine. Could Peter, James, John, and Andrew, could they pick up and just go back to fishing as if this never happened? Could could Matthew leave this group of men and go back to the tax collector's tables as if he had never met this man Jesus? Could Philip act as if he had never met the man under that tree that day and got up and followed him. The only indication we have of anything in his death that anyone was considering him after being laid in the tomb was the women that loved him the most and followed him the closest. Wanted to anoint his body according to the Jewish customs because they too thought it was over. That was Friday. Dark, frightening, devastating, confusing Friday.
1: It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter is asleep. Judas is betrayed. But Sunday is coming. It's Friday, Pilate's struggling, the council is conspiring, the crowd is vilified, they don't even know that Sunday's coming, it's Friday, the disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd, Mary's crying, Peter is denied. but they don't know that Sundays are coming. Friday, the Romans beat my Jesus, they robe him in scar, they crown him with thorns, but they don't know that Sunday's come. it's Friday, see Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit burning. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nailed my Savior's hand to the cross. They nailed my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sundays coming, it's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday, but Sundays coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles The sky grows dark My king yields his spirit It's Friday Hope is lost Death has won Sin has come And Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday Jesus is dead A soldier stands gone. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It is only Friday. Sunday is a coming.
2: The
0: beauty of the story is that Friday... The hopelessness of Friday gives way to the beauty and the hope of Sunday. You see, we remember that death not because Jesus was some special man, not because Jesus was a good teacher. We don't remember that day that he died because Jesus had a big following. There were plenty of people that had a big following. We remember that day. We celebrate this morning. We've spent 40 hours fasting. We came together Friday to remember the crucifixion because Jesus is alive. You see, that's why we celebrate. That's why we remember Him. That day of hopelessness gives way to the great hope of the resurrection. And Mark as Mark comments on the, the resurrection, he writes, he says, Now, when he rose early on the first day, and I, I mean, I, as I read that this weekend, I thought, Come on, really? Is it just that normal and easy for you to say, Now, when he rose early on that Sunday? That's huge. It's an amazing event, but I mean, I, I, I think that they, they, they were so close to it and they seen it so closely, they didn't even question it. They didn't need the evidence. They didn't demand, teach me how you know that. Teach me how to believe that. He just simply states it and takes it for granted. Now when He rose on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom He had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with Him as they mourned and wept. But when they had heard that He was alive and had been seen by her, they wouldn't believe it. Jesus was not dead, but He was alive. He had risen. And several of the women, you know, they had gone to the tomb and on their way, they were on their way to anoint His body and they're talking about things. The scripture records for us that they're talk, talking along the way and they're concerned about this big stone. How in the world are we going to move it? How are we going to get to Him? How are we going to do what we're going to do? And I can picture them, them coming around a, a, maybe a, a growth of trees and, and seeing the tomb. And the stone has been moved. It's just a gaping dark hole. And they find that his body's gone. And immediately they're struck with, they're, they're, they're confused even more. They're, they're upset. They're distraught. And then they've seen angels. Vibrant, brilliant, white, just glowing. I'm imagining it's almost like this electric white that's just shining off of them, standing in front of them and saying, why are you looking for Jesus here among the dead? Don't you remember He told you? He told you that He would rise on the third day. Go, tell His friends, tell the people that followed Him. And Mary, Mary, I mean, she does this. She, Mary, Mary is a, is an, a is kind of a it's an interesting story. Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons. I didn't have seven demons, and I was an evil man. This woman, who obviously had lived in evil and just just depraved ways receives the honor of being the first person to physically see Jesus. There's a lot of people that, as they think about Mary and what the Bible teaches us about Mary, they want to they try and figure out what she was guilty of. I think there's a reason why no one tells us exactly the sins that Mary was guilty of. I think the reason is this, because history is not to remember her for who she was but for who Jesus made her to be. When she saw Jesus in that garden, she wasn't a woman possessed by demons. She was a woman forgiven by God
1: who had been given the
0: honor to stand and see Jesus in the flesh with her own eyes, her sinfully forgiven eyes. And she, of all people, of all people that God could have chosen, she's the first missionary to go and spread the message of a risen King, of a risen Savior, a, a Jesus alive. And so I'm sure with some excitement, and not I, I'm I'm sensing you know that there's this joy that's bubbling up inside of her, this man that she's followed, that she's loved that she's cared for, that she's listened to, that she's devoted her life to. I'm certain that she is just full of joy and it's just bubbling up outside of her. She can't wait to share this great news that she runs into this room where these disciples that had been scattered and cowering and scared and afraid were now hiding together. And she tells them, He's alive. And maybe she's shouting, you're
1: not going to believe this. You're not gonna believe it. I saw him. He's alive.
0: And they doubt her. Come on. You're crazy. You're seeing things. What were you drinking? Can we blame him for that, really? I mean, have you ever heard a story about someone being raised from the dead? I have. And every time I, I've shared that story with some of you, we don't have time this morning, but I've heard a story of someone being raised from the dead. And I can tell you that it is not easy to just accept and believe. My, my Western mind, my, my simple mind, it's like when people are dead, that's, they're, they're done. That's what I'm used to. You go to their funeral, you put them in the ground, and, and that's it. But this story of mine, I, it came from someone I trust. I implicitly trust this person. The missionary I met in China and spent spent time with and that, that I believe he is telling me the truth. But the story I've been told about a person being raised from the dead isn't just about one person being raised from the dead, but about two people being raised from the dead. It, it's easy to imagine how they would doubt this. Oh, you might say, well, hey, these disciples, they'd seen Jesus. Just just a couple of weeks before, they'd seen Jesus walk up to a tomb and say, Lazarus, come out! And this dead man comes hobbling out all wrapped up in his grave clothes. It might be easier for them, right? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think so. Because the man that they had seen stand in front of that tomb and call out for Lazarus to come was the one in the grave. Who was going to call him out? Who was going to give him the power to tell him to come? Who was going to do this work? You're crazy, Mary. The demons got you again? Oh, but Mary, she'd been forgiven. She'd walked in the, in the, in the footsteps of, of, of Jesus, her Savior. And now she'd seen him in the flesh. And because of that, she would never be the same. She had met the risen Savior and she would never be the same. Jesus was alive. But before the end of that day, no matter how much they doubted, it, no matter how crazy they thought Mary might have been, she was going to be proven right. See, Jesus would appear to the rest of the women that had been at the tomb. He would then appear to Peter and two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. And later that evening, he would appear to all but one disciple, whose name was Thomas. And in that day, most of his closest followers would know Jesus was alive. There's no longer any reason to doubt he's alive. And today, as, I, as we sit here, as we sit here, I think that, you know, we grow up in this, in, in this American culture, in this, this context in which everywhere we turn, especially in, in, in the midst of the Bible Belt, everywhere we turn, we hear this. If you've grown up in church, you've heard it all your life. Easter morning, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think it's so easy just to brush past it, almost like Mark did in that one little phrase, now when he had risen on that first day. I think it's so easy for us to just move past it that we don't even think about it. Now it's been ingrained in me since I was little. But there's a whole world out there that hears this truth and thinks it's crazy. It's nuts. Dead people are dead. They don't come back. How could it be that you would trust in a, in a Jesus that's risen? How could it be that you would trust in him? And I tell you, the reason that I believe as I've, as I've struggled with this and I've, as I've walked through this path because there was a time when I was raised in this and it was, it was ingrained in me and there was a time where I was bitter and angry and doing everything I could to get God to leave me alone and I wanted to doubt. And I asked the questions and I dealt with the issues. And the reason, the very first reason I came to settle on the fact that I could believe was because these earliest of believers who had seen Jesus were so radically changed. They went from being scared, cowards, hiding in the darkness, behind locked and closed doors, and and doing everything they could to stay out of trouble, to Stanley and boldly proclaiming this truth, that Jesus had died, but now he's alive. That struck me because as I studied their lives, I began to see that they didn't just do this when it was easy. Most of them died proclaiming this truth and and trusting and and professing Jesus Christ as Lord. Oh, they were martyrs and they didn't die simply. They died horribly. They were hanged on cross and run through, hanged on crosses and run through with spears and, and beaten. And they lost families and they, and they, and they lost their, their uh, livelihoods and, and they, they wandered from place to place. They, they didn't have a lot. They were poor men and women who had trusted in this man who had been dead, but now is alive. And as I began to recognize what a shift it made in their life, I began to recognize in my own how big this really was. There's so much that hangs on the resurrection. And as I began to trust it, and as I began to follow in it, and walk in it. I didn't have to trust in somebody else's experience, but Jesus began to show himself to me. You see, I'm not like Paul, and I wasn't walking down a road on, on the way to persecute Christians and see Jesus in his flesh. But he has shown himself to me and I no longer doubt that he was dead and is now alive. And I'm here this morning to boldly proclaim it in front of you. And and I spend my life, I I spend my days praying to to consider how I might might share it with people who don't know it yet. Who who are hurt by the the people who say they believe it. Who are disconnected from the people who who say they believe it. the, the, The people that just don't want to believe it. Because without the resurrection, it's only Friday. Without the resurrection, hope is gone. Without the resurrection, the gospel loses all of its power. You see, if Jesus were still dead in the grave, then he wasn't God. He wasn't the lamb come to take away the sins of the world. He was just another Messiah wannabe. You see, what we don't hear about a lot in the Bible is that in that time, in the the Jewish ways, they were looking for a Messiah. And repeatedly, over and over, even at the time of Jesus, men were coming and saying that they were the one that God had sent. If Jesus were still in the grave, He'd just be a wannabe. Just be another person acting the part. With no power to back it up. But rather, it's because of the resurrection that Jesus' death counts to save us from our sins. It's because of the resurrection that Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death were not in vain. Romans uh, 4.25 says, Who was delivered? That's talking about Jesus. You could replace who with Jesus. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. For those of you that were there Friday night, and and those that weren't, I'll clue you in. Uh, I, I mentioned to you that Jesus' motive, as he went to the cross, was love. It was love that God sent him through. It was His love that motivated him to lay down His life. His purpose was justice. He couldn't. God couldn't forgive sins and remain holy and righteous. God couldn't overlook sins and remain holy and righteous if he didn't demand death and and sacrifice. So his motive is love, and his his purpose is justice. And he's really looking at his Father, and he's saying, really, this is all about you. But in the resurrection, we begin to learn that, yes, it's for the Father, and it's for his glory, but all the benefit is ours. In fact, you almost can't read in the Bible of the resurrection without it pointing to the beauty and benefit that it provides to the people of God. You see, it's in the resurrection that we finally gain the beauty of salvation. It's in the resurrection that we're finally given this peace of justification and can be called righteous. Because without it, Jesus is dead in the grave and our sins are still ours to carry. Jesus' death satisfied, satisfied the justice of the Father. And then through his resurrection, he passes it on to us. It's because of the resurrection that Paul knew his preaching had purpose and that our faith is worthy. He's dealing with the Corinthians and he, and he comes to writing and, and he's dealing with an issue in the Corinthian uh, church. They're, they're debating whether or not there's a resurrection from the dead that will be physically resurrected or not. And Paul comes to them he's like, hey, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus isn't resurrected. And if Jesus Jesus isn't resurrected, what's that mean for us? He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Paul's preaching, your sharing of the gospel, your going and living as a witness, my preaching, the, the efforts that we make in this world, they have purpose. Because Jesus is alive. Our faith, the trust that we build and and the relationship we build, it's not worthless. It's not empty unless it's put in some object that's empty. But you see, our faith counts as long as our faith and the object of it is Jesus, the risen Savior. Jesus is alive. And because of that, Our message is true, our message is real, has purpose, and our faith is substantial. It's because of the resurrection that years later, as Peter wrote to a scattered and suffering, persecuted church, that he didn't start by offering condolences. He didn't come to this church who under the rule of the Roman government, which was likely at this time Nero, and who was the greatest persecutor of the church in Roman history, he would, he would impale Christians on poles along the street, dip them in tar, or coat them in tar, and light them on fire to light the roads in Rome. He would cover them with dead, dead animal skins and throw them in the midst of the Colosseum. And let the wild animals eat them and rip them to pieces. And It wasn't just Rome. Jerusalem. Jerusalem hated the Christians. Paul, the way Paul came to faith, was on the way to Damascus to kill believers. To arrest them and kill them. All because they believed that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ, who had died, was now alive and, and these people who suffered in this way, you might think a person would come to them and say, "I am so sorry that you have to deal with these issues. I am so sorry you are suffering." but years later, as Peter looks back in all that he had experienced because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he didn't start with condolences in fact, in the letter he doesn't even offer them but he writes this blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ what this god i mean this is our attitude in in many of us it's our attitude now that wait a minute where where where's god when i'm hurting Where's he at when, it, when when everything's falling apart? Where's he at when I'm struggling with temptation? Where is he when it seems like the world is falling apart? If anybody might have had a right to say it, these, these believers might have had a right to say it. They might have had a right to ask for it, but no, Peter doesn't even offer it. He calls them to praise God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy.
1: Mercy. Mercy. I'm suffering. I've lost children. I've lost
0: family members. My, my own family kicked me out of my house. If I tell anybody I believe in Jesus, I might be threatened with death. the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And there are so many other verses that you can turn to and look at to hear about what the resurrection has done and what it means to people and how it now feeds us and blesses God's people. And it's what makes the difference. There's no other religion that will tell you this. There's no other hope that's offered every other religion, every other perspective is all about us trying to find our way to God. In the resurrection, we learn that God came to us. And even in the midst of the worst circumstances, because of the resurrection, we can see His act of mercy, a living hope, a beautiful expectation of salvation, and we can experience joy in spite of our circumstances. I mean, just in this passage, in this passage alone, because of the resurrection, we see that death is overcome. Through Jesus' resurrection, through his life, we have life. We've been born again. It says that that we have been given a new life. And this life has a new perspective. No longer are we trapped By the perspectives of a fallen world. No longer does our view stop at the circumstances that surround us. No longer does our wishful thinking define how we look at the days ahead. No longer are we bound. No longer will any grave ever be able to hold us. No longer do we have reason to fear. Because Jesus who was dead is now alive. You see, that's the new life. And this new perspective of hope. This new perspective of hope looks forward. It looks forward and it expects something. It's not some wishful thought. It's not something that, some idea that might happen. The Bible always uses this word hope as a confident expectation. You can believe it. You take the check to the bank, it's going to clear. It looks forward to an inheritance that's imperishable. The things in this world always rot and die metal rusts and fades and crumbles to the dust it just turns to dust fruits and vegetables that we set on our counters and even if you keep them in a refrigerator it might just prolong the period but it's going to rot and die and be useless but this hope and the hope in this resurrection the confident expectation in this inheritance that's been given to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ will never perish. It's undefiled, meaning that it is not tainted with sin at all. Sin has never touched it. And it's unfading. It will never cease to exist. And it will always be just as beautiful as the day you step into it. I think that's probably hard for us to imagine because rings tarnish. The new toys that we get, the new gadgets we get, they break. A house that, oh man, it's my dream house turns into a job to keep it up. The things that we think we want and the things that we think will satisfy us soon don't. Even for those that are really beautiful in their flesh and just Oh, man, they're pretty people. They're going to get old and wrinkly. It's all going to fade. But This inheritance that we have to look forward to will never cease being as beautiful as it was the day you stepped into And we have a confident expectation. We have an expectation we can look forward to. It. We can count on it. it's ours. it's as sure as his words are. it's as sure as, as it is that we're just sitting here and you're looking at me. That is as sure as your res- or your inheritance that you have to look forward to. It's as sure as the seat you're sitting on it's as certain as anything you've ever experienced. But you know, this confident hope that we have, this, this expectation, this, this looking forward isn't just about looking forward. There's a confident expectation in where we're at today. Paul points out, actually in verse eight and nine, and if you just, actually six through nine, but if you listen to eight through nine, I want you to see what he says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Remember, these people were suffering. They were being persecuted. This was, we can't even, uh, we, we can't even fathom what they were dealing with because of their connection to Christ. But this confident hope they had, this confident expectation didn't just give them a promise that was for the future. It filled them with a joy in the midst of some difficult circumstances. That when they saw brothers and sisters and children dying. And when their life was being turned upside down and their world was being just unhinged around them. They knew Jesus. They believed in Jesus. And they recognized that they were receiving the salvation of their souls. And they were filled with this inexpressible joy. Not because they were putting their hope in what they could do. Not because they were putting their hope in their families or their identity in the things around them. But because they were trusting in Jesus. You see, if 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 you fasted with us and you learned anything this weekend through that fast, i hope that you come away with one lesson for sure that the things of this world are nearly as necessary for our or are nearly as necessary for our life as is our savior i don't have to have an ipad i don't have to have a, a phone i don't have to have any type of technology i don't have to have All the food I eat. You know what? I don't even absolutely have to have the breath I breathe, but what I do need for life is Jesus. And not a dead Jesus that's in the ground, dead, buried, and can be found, but the Jesus who came to life, who rose from the grave, and showed himself to his people, and began to teach them, and call them to follow, and to spread the word that he is alive. And because of that resurrection, there is great benefit and beauty for the believer. See, death is overcome. So I don't have to be afraid that the oxygen runs out. I don't have to be afraid that I might lose a job. I don't have to worry or be concerned that I might not understand what I can know with assurance. And you can know with assurance. Is that the most important thing that could be taken care of has been taken care of. Death is overcome. This hope or confident expectation, it looks forward, but it finds satisfaction in Jesus now. Not only is death overcome, but hell is no longer the believer's destination. This is a difficult truth, and it's one that's being debated a lot in Christian culture today, a lot in our in in our uh, nation. But the truth is, is that there is a separation from God that will exist, and 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 a distance from God that I mean, you just will not know His presence, and it will be suffering, and it will be horror, and it will be um it it, it, it it's probably worse than we could ever imagine. I've heard Tim Keller describe it, and somebody asked him, Well, do you, do, do you believe in a lake of fire, a literal lake of fire, and do you believe in literal flames? And the way he answers that question, and I appreciate it, is that he's not sure that those things are literal, but he's certain that they help us understand that they are for the, the, the hell that will be experienced, the, the torment that will be experienced is far worse than we could ever imagine. But for the believer, because of the resurrection, this is as close as we will ever get. In fact, Peter tells us that our new destination, where we're going to get the inheritance, he says that the inheritance is being kept somewhere for us. It's being held. It's being reserved. it's It's being held just for you. God knows you he, as His child. He knows you as one who's been saved, as, who is trusted in the resurrection, who is receiving the benefits of the resurrection, and He's looking at you, and He's holding your inheritance just for you in heaven. You see, for the believer, that's the new destination. I don't, I don't say that, and I, I don't mean to be harsh and cruel for those that aren't believers. But I want you to recognize that there is reason to celebrate. That the blessings are real. The hope and the things that we look forward to aren't empty. Hell is vanquished for us. God's power is our assurance. It says, and Peter, Peter tells us, that that those who are who are receiving this benefit, that the people that Peter is writing to are being protected by the power of God. I mean, you consider what you think you can accomplish in a day. I don't know what's the most you ever picked up. What's the most you've ever been able to lift by yourself? What's the greatest thing you've ever been able to do? And I guarantee you that the, that the power of God makes you look like a little bitty ant. Feeble. Incapable. And compared to the power of the Creator who knows it all, who has done everything for us, who has put the creation together, who has held it together, who keeps it spinning, who makes it work, this God. By his power is protecting you, your inheritance, the promises that he's made. He's making sure you make it. There's nothing that can derail you because God's power is for you. It's beautiful. And and, and here's the deal. Here's the thing is that every bit of this, every phrase of this sentence in the Greek, and and I think in the ESV as well, this is one long sentence. It's just one long phrase. And every bit of it hangs on this one statement. It's Jesus' resurrection that made it sure. It's Jesus' resurrection that means this is all true. It's Jesus' resurrection that's the proof It all hangs on the resurrection. Our faith is not in vain because of the resurrection. We have hope because of the resurrection. We have an inheritance because of the resurrection. God's power is proven because of the resurrection. Our salvation is certain because of the resurrection. Our sufferings are not in vain because of the resurrection. We can believe this. We experience this. We can know it with certainty because Friday was gone and Sunday came and Jesus rose from the grave and today He's alive. You see, that's the beauty of the resurrection. And my hope, my, oh my hope, I know that we're kind of a subdued group, but I hope that you, like these suffering people that Peter wrote to, this scattered and suffering church, that you are sensing a joy inside of you. It's bubbling up. Because this hope, this hope, this life, this power these blessings are yours because Jesus is alive. I heard, uh, I actually read a blog by a guy this week. And I was reading the blog and I was a little disturbed. I know the guy and I've always felt like he had a pretty good attitude. But he got on his blog and he starts ranting about this idea that he's being told, oh, Don't worry, Sunday's coming. Don't worry, Sunday's coming. Life is difficult, but Sunday's coming. You know, and certainly nobody can say it like that black preacher can preach it. But he was bothered by that. He's frustrated by that. In the depths of his darkness and in the depths of his suffering, he's angry because people are telling him that Sunday's coming. Let me tell you, that's the only reason we have to go on. That's the only reason that makes this worth it. If Jesus is dead, let's get it over with now. Because all we have to look forward to is suffering, but because He's alive. There's a Sunday coming. There is a Sunday coming, a day of rest, the day of the Lord, that Peter writes about and promises us, in which we will not be disappointed. We will not be let down, and we will receive the inheritance, and our faith will be made sight And we will be standing in the presence of our God. Like Mary and the women at the, at the tomb that they rushed and grabbed his feet and worshiped, we will be able to touch him. And like Thomas, we'll be able to look at the stars, the scars in his hand and the scars on his feet and in his side. And we'll be able to see him in his beauty and in his glory. We'll see his eyes of compassion and tenderness that looked down from the cross at those who crucified Him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We'll see the affection that looked down on a mother and a disciple. And He cared for His mother and He said, Behold, this is Your Son. And to His disciple, this is Your Mother. We'll, we'll, We'll see the face that writhed in agony as His Father forsook Him. And He cried out, My God, My God, Why have you forsaken me? We will see the man in his flesh that thirsted and drank sour wine. Who hung his head saying it is finished. Justice is served. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's a Sunday coming that should give us all hope. And that in the darkest of darks and in the deepest of deeps and the struggles of struggles, let me tell you, this is the only hope. So don't be discouraged when somebody tells you Sunday's coming. And if you hear someone saying, oh, I don't want to hear that, you, you remind them that this is the only hope we have. This life has nothing for us. We're promised nothing here. There's nothing that can last, that will be, that that will be satisfying, that will give us joy and peace. There's nothing for us. Our home is in heaven. And because of the resurrection, that's why we're, where we're headed. And now, because Jesus is, Jesus is alive, as the church, we can live. And we can live confidently in Christ. We, We don't have to be arrogant or jerks. But we can be certain of what we have ahead and what is in store for us now. When we can live boldly by Christ. Again, not walking up to people and not considering their concerns or their needs. Not being uh, so proud and, and, and hurtful with our words that, that it's, it, does, it doesn't take into, the, into consideration the other person but we can be bold about who we are by Christ and his resurrection and because Jesus is alive we can live as a church humbly before Christ you see the truth is is that being bold doesn't keep us from the ability to be humble oh we can be bold we can go out with with little with little concern for ourselves because Jesus is alive and he is our hope but we can be humble because it's really not about us You see, it's really about the glory of God. And we might receive all the benefit and blessing of the resurrection because God loves us so much and he has our good in mind. But even our best good brings glory to our great God. It's really all about him. We can live as a church because of the resurrection joyfully because of Christ. Our circumstances don't have to rule who we are. They don't have to rule how we approach people. The worst parts of our day don't have to be the things that we've always talked about. But the joy that fills us because we know the risen Savior can move us, motivate us. And because of the resurrection, we can now live wholly like Christ. Peter, in fact, the rest of this letter, as Peter finishes the introduction to this letter, Peter still doesn't offer condolences, but he calls them to a holy or pure and devoted life because of the resurrection. Because of all that Jesus had done, all that God had done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Son, he says now, be holy, like he is holy. That means be pure, be distinct, be separate from the world, but don't be so separate from the world that you can't reach out to the world. Don't be so distinct from the world that you can't identify with them. But in the midst of this world, you live as a witness and representation of the risen Savior. And that can be our life. Confidently in Christ. Holy by Christ. Humbly before Christ. Joyfully because of Christ. Holy like
2: Christ. Thank you.
0: Tell you what, I'm going to ask Brent and the band to come and just kind of play quietly. And I want you to think. I just want you to do a little introspection and, and spend some time considering where you're at. And really, I guess there's a question that kind of centers around all of this is that what will you believe? You know there may be people in this room that have never come to a place where they fully trusted in this resurrection and that Jesus is alive and because of that because of that they're separated and they don't know the victory that's on the other side of that grave you see they're doubting paul wrote in romans 10:9 he says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him From the dead. Do you believe that Jesus is alive? If you do, all the benefits that come from the resurrection are yours. And and I ask you to hear the challenge. Hear the challenge of that video, church. Come awake. Step up. Live life. Walk into the world alive and free from all the sin and the tangled flesh and the, and the, and the, and the things that trap us and confine us to resurrection. The resurrection seals it for us. But maybe, maybe you've never believed. Maybe, like all of those guys and the disciples and the followers of Jesus, that, that, that moment when Mary walked in, That moment when Mary walked in and said, Jesus is alive, I've seen Him with my own eyes. Maybe you've not believed. I'm going to ask you to believe. Place your faith in Christ. Trust in Him. He's the only answer. He's the only way. We're going to close today in this time of response a little differently. If you are a believer and have been, I'm going to ask you to celebrate, not considering the people around you so much, but thinking solely about the resurrection, not being worried about what they're thinking. If they're, if they're celebrating and, and worshiping and adoring Christ because of his resurrection, they're not going to notice you. They're not going to know. But I want you to look at your Savior, the one who died and then rose again so that you could know this life, and I want you to adore him. I want you to love Him. I want you to worship Him. But if you're here today and you've never believed, I'm going to ask you to consider this. He is the only way. He is the risen Savior. Will you believe in Him today? And I'm going to ask the people that typically go back and and lead us in prayers. I'm going to ask Matt and, and Amy and Scott and Kitty to go ahead and go back. And if you're here today and this is the first time you believe, we don't do this often, but I I think it's important. As we sit here today and have heard this message, I think it's important. If today's the day that you've come to a place or you have never in your life professed faith in the risen Savior, I'm going to challenge you to believe in Him today. I'm going to ask you to consider the evidence. A world changed because a guy who died became alive. Not just any man, but our Savior. What are you going to believe? How are you going to respond?